Good, and you're listening to the American Exception Podcast. Today, I'm talking with Matt, the ghost historian, we could say, the host of the podcast, Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Matt and I are talking about Danny Casalaro and his white whale, or white octopus, or just his octopus, the octopus, really. All right, Matt, it is great to have you here. Good to be here, man. So you did a series on one of those American um, parapolitical sagas or, or, or great grand conspiracies uh, of all time, uh, the octopus uh, and Danny Casalaro. And uh, I think that I'm really grateful to you for doing this because you were, um, that seems to have, there were other store people who have looked into it, but it, it's often someone that he's a character who is appealing to those people who are very much into uh, sort of conspiracies as a big whodunit that you're going to unravel, which is cool and sort of understandable. But you, you look deeper at like what he was getting into and why he ended up the way he did. So I just uh, I, I tip my cap to you for doing that. Um, what made you want to start looking into the octopus in the first place? Like, how did you first approach this uh, epic epic scandal um well believe it or not the way i first got interested in this story was i first got the internet when i was like 14 or 15 and you know like all well-adjusted um young men i just wanted to see like you know naked ladies and 9-11 footage because why not and it was in kind of reading more and more about 9-11 and the networks around that I'd be trawling forums and I'd just find references all the time to this software called Promise and from Promise to all these other players who kind of connected to it. Um, and then from there, I just kept seeing the name Danny Casalara like repeatedly again and again. So I guess it's been like a fucking 20 odd year fixation at this point. I mean, sometimes I'll go a while without reading anything about it, but I always end up sort of returning to it and, because there's always new files and you know disclosures being released so yeah i guess that's how i got into it and um just been down the rabbit hole ever since yeah you know the first i think the first conversation that i had with peter dale scott on the phone at, at some point he told me uh don't ever don't ever try to get to the bottom of the inslaw case yeah never he, was, he'll, he said you'll never you'll <laughs> never get to the bottom of it and you'll go crazy and uh i I had already been aware of the insult case and I had, I didn't look into it that deeply. So I, I knew enough to know that that was funny what he was saying, but, uh, you, you did, you did try to, you did go into we it tried. and look at it. Yeah. I, I'm glad you did. I don't, you didn't get to the bottom of it, but unlike Danny Kosolari, you're still with us, which is cool. Yeah. So <laughs> the core of this whole thing is, uh, or, uh, it's sort of the core and then it ends up being kind of a MacGuffin almost, yeah. except a MacGuffin kind of only makes sense if you're talking about a fictional story, but in this, in the way that this is, it, it kind of works that way. What was this promise software? And I, this is, it, this is, it's kind of comical now when you think of the technology we have on our phones to think of like the power of promise, but could you, uh, could you explain just, you know, not, uh, not every little detail of it, but like, Basically, what was Promise? Why is this uh, software so explosive? 
Right. Okay. So my boy Benghazi, who did the series with me, he is probably going to yell at me after this because um, he has a much better handle on the, the particulars of the tech and whatnot. But Promise was part of a, a suite of software packages. It was quite a well-recognized um, brand name at the time. And in fact, to this day, you can still find versions of Promise like commercially available. And the version of Promise that we are talking about when we talk about the octopus is the one that was developed by a, a firm called Inslaw which was owned by a guy called Bill Hamilton, who was an ex-NSA uh, analyst. He'd worked in Vietnam. He came back home, and his brother, I believe, was a cop. And he he got to learning about how uh, chaotic and disorganized the court system was, how the police were having a lot of trouble uh, rotating cases through the justice system because the administrative, um, the administrative organization was so poor. So he started to look at this software called Promise, and he realized that, like, if Inslaw could get the right coders and developers, they could add some tweaks to it, uh, make some modifications, and create this really nifty uh, database administrative tool. Um, and a long story short, they entered into a contract agreement with the Department of Justice to install it at various um, prosecutors' offices across America. They then developed um, the Inslaw enhanced version of Promise. And in the early 80s, as they began the rollout, things started to go south very quickly um, with the Department of Justice. And a lot of it was owing to personal animosity between Bill Hamilton and a guy called Madison Brick Brewer, who had worked at Inslaw until he was fired by Bill. And then he went to work for the Department of Justice where he was overseeing the promised contract, which he should not have really been doing because that was a conflict of interest. Very long story short, the Department of Justice basically stiffed Inslaw and refused to pay them. And then after the fact, Bill Hamilton started to learn that the DOJ had been so impressed with this enhanced version of promise that they had actually stolen it and distributed it to their friends as payment possibly for uh, people like Edwin Meese and Earl Bryan's role in the October surprise negotiations. This is only like, what, two minutes worth of summary. And already you can see why this is uh, enough to drive someone sane off the deep end, you know. Um, and from there, it only gets more complex. The, the court case itself dragged on well into the 2000s. Um, and obviously then... Around the late 80s, that's when people start to die because it turns out that certain other modifications have been Ill possibly illegally made to promise and it's been then illegally sold and installed at various intelligence agencies around the world. Uh, and that's why they call this entire thing dirtier than Watergate, I suppose. You see that phrase a lot. Yeah, it does have some... It, it, it brings to mind some aspects of Watergate. I don't know if you've ever read Jim Hogan's book, uh, Secret Agenda, but he talks about how in the 70s, around the time of Watergate, the, the, the intelligence agencies were had been, uh, I think especially the CIA, had been trying to, to develop these political, um, well, these personality machines that could that you could somehow put in enough information about a person and then you would know how they would, they would act. And so yeah. you could predict how they would respond. And that, that seems to have been some of like promise seems to have some hypothetical applications or 
potential applications that that mirror that is that uh, okay um so this was i mean just quickly as well um there is a major watergate connection between uh aside from a few of the other players is elliot richardson was inslaw's uh counsel and obviously uh he played quite a big role in watergate he recognized immediately what was going on when the contract dispute began and he smelled a rat almost straight away but anyway uh promise if you if you speak to Bill Hamilton, what he will tell you is Promise just tracks things. That's what it's designed to do. So it can rotate. When it was used in uh, court cases, it could rotate cases by uh, who the judge was, what the charges were. You could cross-reference different lawyers and paralegals and see what other cases they'd worked on. You could see how the defendants connected to other defendants in other cases, all this kind of thing. And as it was more refined and developed they realized that they could use it to build profiles, you know, of particular kinds of uh, offenders and whatnot. And this is where I presume the intelligence community realized it would be a very effective uh, weapon uh, in this new uh, religion of counterterrorism that they were all becoming obsessed with, like through the 80s. So, um, so that gets us into the whole Israeli angle, which is where this talk about a trap door starts coming in. So you have the intelligence agencies see the potential of promise as a way to build profiles of people and communities and social networks and, you know, harness it in the fight against terrorism or as a counterterrorism tool. But then when allegedly this trapdoor is installed in promise by a guy called Michael Reconosciuto, who's been hired by O'Brien, who is in turn probably working for the CIA. This means that when the CIA uh, sells Promise or when Mossad sells Promise um, to a different intelligence agency around the world, they can then spy on what that intelligence agency is looking at and they can pull the information that that intelligence agency is compiling so they can add that to their own database then and expand their own you know, um, network maps of terrorist groups or populations or whatever it might be that you want to monitor and uh gather more intelligence about and yeah the hope is that once you gather enough information then you can predict how this trouble population is going to act and you can uh better counteract them you know and um it's it gets quite wild because the it as the 80s and the 90s roll on people start just kind of adding more and more abilities to promise um in terms of, you know, speculating about what it could do, not actually adding anything. And so you kind of get to like the turn of the millennium where it gets into some really wacky out there stuff, you know, where uh, it's being used to modify people's brains. It's being used to hijack the airliners on 9-11. It's, it gets pretty kooky, you know? Yeah. And I, th I think that it's, it's one of those things where the, conspiracy culture is it sort of functions like uh like art or movies where it's like you can some of your crazier hunches and suspicions are like in some ways they can't be grounded or substantiated empirically but they speak to uh fear really yeah. legitimate fears in our society and probably to actual reality more so than we want to admit because all of the stuff that they that that some of these people would 
add or speculate about being added to this to this program are things that we've eventually come to uh, be seen and get adopted into our network technologies and everything else. I mean, yeah, that to me yeah. is a fascinating part of this whole case is that it's the paranoia is is grounded and there's a good reason to to think these ways even if it doesn't make sense to literally attribute it to all that is software yeah i mean rafi Eitan actually said when he he was given an interview to gordon thomas in the 90s he actually said that promise changed the entire intelligence game in the 80s and into the 90s because it was such a kind of father time sophisticated piece of software such a great piece of coding it inspired people to start dreaming up like crazier and crazier shit that you could do with computers to monitor people, to spy on them, you know, to conduct espionage. And so even if the the more fanciful, you know, in the 80s, the more fanciful stuff that people attributed to Promise wasn't possible then, I think there's a good argument to be made that Promise did in fact inspire like an entire new generation of spooks to actually go off and make that stuff a reality, you know. And this is the world we're living in today, really. Yeah. I mean, that was my... I had already kind of internalized this pretty early on once I... Once uh, the Obama betrayal or whatever you want to call it, Obama, I worked on his campaign and he was Mr. Change. I figured he... I figured as a Democrat, he actually had an incentive to go and prosecute Bush from the other party for his crimes because that's that logic is pretty apparent in a democratic society, you would think. And then when he didn't, I realized there was a lot more corruption, but pretty quickly I, I surmised this is before Snowden and I was communicating with a radical professor and I was like, I'm sure that they, that all of these emails and probably the whole internet as a whole is basically one big massive surveillance thing. And you got to assume that anything you send online is, is monitored. And then when the Snowden stuff came out he said, Oh, you were right about that. And I said, well, it's just because I would do that if I were them. Yeah. When Snowden happened, I was I was levitating. I mean, I know there's a lot of people who say he's like a he's some kind of limited hangout or whatever, but just the stuff that he revealed, I was levitating over that because it, it just confirmed so much of the shit that I'd been reading for like what, ten years by that point about promise and yeah. about what people thought promise had become. You know, I mean there's a there are there's a lot of circumstantial evidence to suggest that Prism was itself the NSA program was based off the kind of the code base of promise in the early going, you know, before it was developed and refined into what it became. Um, so yeah, it was, it was pretty fucking wild to see the Snowden leaks just happen. And a lot of people's most extreme paranoias are just confirmed. Um, yeah. Well, have... and that happens again too with vault seven with vault seven. I was like, <laughs> I was, I'd already thought that similar things about like those leaks with Guccifer and how they like, there was these stupid Russian Cyrillic characters inserted inappropriately. <laughs> and it was like, this doesn't make sense. Like how, what would stop them from be, you know, the people that are in charge of, syst of systems and all these tech monopolies, what would stop them from like making backdoors and yep. other means of like doing this? I'm sh I, like, I bet this is like, this is what they would do. This is just like the way they used to do poison pen letters and shit. It's just a fancier version of it. Like, yeah. If this occurs to me, it would occur to them. I mean, you know? um, we had the, the Pegasus scandal, was it last year or the year before? That is basically the promise story. It's just a different software that they're using, but it's basically the exact same thing, like distributing what is essentially sci uh, spyware and then just harvesting the information, you know, as people use the app. Um, and in fact, promise isn't even the first example of this. There was Crypto AG, which 
started in the 70s when the CIA and a company called Crypto AG was selling compromised cryptography machines to different clients all over the world. And they'd been hacked, you know, so they were just being monitored by uh, the CIA, MI6, West German intelligence. So this has a long, long history, you know, which is another reason why I find it strange that people struggle so much, you know, to, uh, to buy the promised story. Um, this has been something they've done for as long as computers have existed, to be honest. Right. I mean, I always well, figured the people like Bill Gates, right? I mean, mm-hmm. he's, he's a monopolist and basic, based on the uh, legal principles set out, you know, in the with the dissolute Sherman antitrust laws, other antitrust laws, breaking up standard oil and so on. Like the, the, that shouldn't be he shouldn't be allowed to have this monopoly over a huge sector of the economy. Well, Bill Gates does, but built I, Microsoft off stolen software, you know, like the whole yeah. the whole world runs on this shit. Like um, I, I remember finding an article while I was doing Octopus and it said something like in the early 90s, something like 70, 80 percent of British businesses that used IT software were using pirated copies, you know, of like Microsoft or whatever it might be, Linux. So, yeah, it's just the way the world works, I suppose. Right. And I mean, they, the thing is they, if for whatever reason, somebody like that was at all hesitant to follow government dictates or suggestions or accept like that, they may put some, you know, different officials in positions in the company that are sensitive. Uh, they have the lever of like antitrust litigation. They, the government can just be like, you know, you better do what we say, or we're going to break up your company. And so why wouldn't they? Why wouldn't they do things like put back doors into all of these Windows operating systems and all yeah. these, you know, the, the Microsoft database, uh, you know, Excel, all these things? You, I think you just have to. I mean, there's no reason to think that they have not put back doors into all of our computers and all of these operating systems and software programs and everything else. I mean, why wouldn't they? I mean, uh, you know, and this, this, I, I wonder if this is part of the part of the reason why the panic over promise or why promise was treated this way is because people realized that it, that in general what would come from this would be was explosive and and a, a very powerful set of tools you know yeah and i mean at the time too um the the estimates have it that promise was sold to around 88 countries now you have the cia selling backdoor versions you have israel selling backdoor versions uh MI6 were also at it. Uh, Robert Maxwell was kind of working for MI6, the CIA, and Mossad to sell this stuff. And then the people they're selling it to, a lot of them don't know that it's backdoored. So that would create a huge scandal, you know, if that um, was ever proven to have happened that the CIA has been spying on Australia or other allied countries. Well, they, they found that, and it yeah. turns out it doesn't really cause that it, much of a scandal because the CI, then ACI is just like, well, what are you going to do about it? Yeah, well, that's the thing. I think at the time, though, they were a bit more circumspect, I guess, because computers were still so new, you know. Um, yeah. But then you have to imagine that they will have been selling it to people who were in on the scam. In fact, were buying it because it was trapdoored, and they could sell it on. So then you have people developing their own versions of the code base, adding their own stuff to it, renaming it, and selling it on again. So this thing is just kind of, it's like, you know, when you watch cells just multiplying under a microscope 
It's just spreading across the petri dish, and God knows where it went or what it became. Um, there's a few. We had a few guesses in the season, but the mini series. But um, yeah, it's. I think that's why a lot of people stare away from it is because you could just quite easily follow that and never get anywhere for, you know, hours and hours and hours of recording time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny in that way, and that it's kind of a microcosm of even trying to look at different aspects of the U.S. empire. Because part of it is just corporate boring business crap, and then other then it also involves like you know murder, chicanery, yeah, uh, illicit flows of drugs, weapons, everything else, yeah. you know, spying on people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, I mean that's I think that's what sets this apart is that there are a list of about forty people at least who are connected uh, to the Inslaw affair or adjacent scandals, uh, journalists, investigators. Uh, lawyers in some cases who all died in very strange circumstances uh, from like the late 80s right up through to like the late 2000s uh, there's a great series on YouTube by Nathan Bakker he's a local news reporter in America and he, he calls it the octopus murders and it's just investigating these very strange killings that have happened and he eventually links it all back to uh, Promise and the Inslaw affair so even if we don't buy that Promise was capable of doing what it did, you know, whatever people were digging into around it was certainly bad enough to get them killed. And this is where we get to Promise as the plot MacGuffin, I suppose, because after a yeah. while it, it ceases to be strictly relevant to the story and you realize you, you're looking at something much deeper and darker, I suppose. Right. Yeah. Which is, I mean, I think we've seen in the years that have come since it's uh because the, well, well, we'll we'll get to this, but the fact that this happens at the end of the Cold War is is fascinating. Yeah. But before we get to that, let's talk about Cosolaro and how does he begin to connect this Byzantine legal case? How does he start to connect this to other deep political intrigues from the you know the, the previous few decades? So, Danny is kind of. He's a hard guy to read in a lot of ways. And I'm a lot more sympathetic to him than my boy Ben was. Um, I actually, I'm quite affectionate of Danny Castle towards Danny Castellaro. I kind of sympathize a lot with him, like, and his, uh, his quest, I suppose you could call it. So he was like a writer first and foremost. That's the main thing. He had like the soul of a poet, but <laughs> he, uh, he really wanted to be a writer and he decided he wanted to be like, uh, an investigative journalist in like the Woodward and Bernstein mode, you know, that was going to be his thing, but he could never really land any big stories. Uh, I think he got published in the national Enquirer once or twice. He wound up working and then eventually earning a, a computer software trade magazine. Um, he worked at that for a bit and then he sold it because he wanted to give the writing another shot and he, he kind of got screwed on the deal, you know, um, and he didn't care though, because he was like, I, I'm, I'm going to live the dream. I'm going to go find a big story and break it. And sure enough, like he's pointed towards this lawsuit, uh, the Inslaw affair. And from there, the theft of promise. And from there, he starts making all these connections to the October surprise, BCCI, but yeah, BCCI was itself using uh, promise to kind of 
organize and manage its activities, uh, Iran-Contra, drug running, um, you name it, basically. He managed to find links to all of these different things, even to uh, the company, you know, the the bluegrass conspiracy. Uh, it, it reads like a who's who, basically, of everybody who's ever been a major figure in, uh, I suppose, conspiracy law. They appear in the story of the octopus at one time or another. In your mind, what is the reason why these people? I mean, you don't believe that promise is the key to world domination. So, I, honestly, why, why honest was this so implicated? Why was it so intertwined with this? Because it's an important question, and I don't have a perfect answer, but I, I wonder what your answer or <clears throat> guess would be. Genuinely, it was a really, really good piece of software. And if you were running a bank like BCCI and you can get something like Promise at a discount, yeah, sure. Like they bought it, they installed it, and it's entirely possible they were just using because this is the other thing we have to remember. When people talk about Promise, it can be difficult to figure out which version of Promise they're actually talking about. It could be the spooky trapdoor version they're on about, or it could be the commercially available one that is totally harmless, you know, and is just literally there to organize your files and help you run your business or organize your cart house or whatever it might be that you're using it for. So it could be the case that when people say BCCI uh, bought Promise, it could be the legitimate commercially available one. The reason it's dodgy is because the DOJ should not really have been selling it to them. They didn't have a license to do that. But it doesn't necessarily mean it was the the really hyper illegal trap dog version that they were using. Although I'd be surprised if it wasn't with BCCI. One group that enters into this story because it's not weird enough already. Uh, it has to, we have to crank it up a little more. The LaRouches yes. step into the scene. How yeah. does this happen? And, and what did, what, do you have any insights into what Casalara thought about the LaRouches as a whole or did, or, or, or what, how did this, how does this play into the story? So Jeff Steinberg was a LaRouche operative who'd been following the Inslaw case for years. Uh, and he'd done a lot of work around like Iran Contra and uh, the rise of, uh, you know, the, the new financial elite, I suppose, in America. When the Inslaw affair became news, I think he realized very quickly that this connected to a lot of key players in, like, the Reagan government. So when Danny sort of was casting about for a story, it's unclear how he and Jeff Steinberg actually met each other, but Jeff Steinberg pointed him towards the Inslaw affair. Um yeah, as far as Danny being a LaRouche, I'm not sure he was. Um, but the presence of someone like Jeff Steinberg in the story is very, very interesting, especially when you consider that like the LaRouche organization had kind of penetrated uh, the GRP and the Reagan government in some ways. They had sympathizers, you know, who worked in the, in the White House and in Congress and whatnot. So it's interesting to kind of speculate about what their motives might have been for digging dirt on this case that reflected very badly on certain key Reagan officials, but I don't really have an answer for what their motivations were. So let's talk about what Danny Casolaro's ultimate 
thesis was that he was trying to put forward and his sort of his white whale or his white octopus here and <laughs> that is the octopus thesis what was what was the what was the octopus okay right you'll need to cut this i'm just going to get the list of names again of like the people that he said were part of it um he named the tentacles yeah uh, I always remember Ted Shackley, but everybody does. Um, Richard Helms, uh, I think he's a key person. He put him on there as well, right? Yeah. Um, okay. Um, okay. So I'll I'll take that again. Hang on. Okay. So kind of the. The main thing to remember is that Danny's theory was never fixed in place. It was still kind of a work in progress at the time that he died. And it's possible he may well have abandoned his like theory completely. You know, We don't know because we don't know where he was actually going to finally end up. We don't know where his research was going to take him. Just before he died, he was planning a basically an around-the-world trip, and he was going to hit all these different hotspots of a covert activity, and who knows how that might have influenced the way that he was looking at all this stuff. But according to um, Ken Thomas from The Octopus Secret Government and the Death of Danny Casolaro, Danny conceived of this clandestine group that had been secretly orchestrating world events since World War II. This is a very crude take on his uh, thesis. Um, and according to Ken Thomas, quote, he deemed the first level operatives of the octopus to be Richard Helms, George Pender, John Philip Nichols, a guy who was connected to a place called the Cabazon Band of Mission Indians, this re reservation in California, and Ray Klein. The second level included Robert Chasen, E. Howard Hunt, Edwin Wilson, Thomas Kleins, and Ted Shackley. So there's some very fucking interesting names there. And it kind of has echoes of the Shackley's secret team theories, you know, from the 70s. So I guess what he was probing is very much in line. You know, it had like precedents in the, the annals of like conspiracy research, you know, to that point. Um, but he figured, this is according to what Bill Hamilton told us when we asked him, Danny figured that this guy, George Pender, was actually the boss of the octopus. And this is where I kind of started losing the thread a bit. I wasn't quite clear how he'd, he'd arrived at that conclusion. And it turns out that George Pender was the chairman of the board of a company called, <laughs> this is getting quite complicated, I'm sorry, but I'll try and keep it simple. George Pender was the chairman of a company called Fidco. And on the board of Fidcar, there also sat uh, Clint Murchison, a lot of JFK researchers will know that name, Robert Mayhew, likewise, guys like that. I think Richard Helms might have been on Fidcar as well, but I'm forgetting at the moment. There are a million names in this story. Um, and so there was also another guy called Robert Booth Nichols who was on this board. He is suspected of being one of the people who got Danny killed in the end, and he also played a role in giving Bill Hamilton Hamilton information during the court case uh, with the Justice Department. Did that make any sense at all? Um... I think it does <laughs> in a sense in that it conveys the fact that he had a... Your confusion, I, I think, is not because you're not able to express this somehow 
expressible idea. It's that it was it was a bit fuzzy and convoluted, and it did involve Very. a network of guys whose connections had to be um, taken on a, with a little bit of inferential leaps between each one of them to yeah. think of them as a coherent thing. And I think that comes across. Yeah. And your confusion, I think, is is appropriate because it, it's whenever I have looked into it, I also thought <clears throat> that these networks are significant, but that it's if you try too much to nail them down, you're it's it's going to not be satisfactory. Yeah, you are going to start so I, um you're going to start having some problems like trying to keep all the different lines straight in your head. But basically the the broad overview, if we pulled back, is that Danny's thesis was that the octopus was composed of these eight key guys. Now, sometimes he would substitute different names depending on where he was at in his research. And in his analysis, they worked, you know, sometimes in like groups of two or three with different organizations, but then at moments of acute political or historical crisis in American history, they would unify. And as he put it, they would rise from the seafloor as one cohesive unit and intervene, you know, to tip the scales in their favor. So Bay of Pigs, JFK assassination, uh, Watergate, obviously guys like Hunt. And uh, once again, with the October surprise and then the, uh, the theft of promise as well. Um, it's, which is a very interesting i mean that's an interesting thesis it's it's and i don't <clears throat> if you've read peter dale scott and you've read other uh research into these areas and you see the way that a sort of dark hand can intervene in certain way at, at decisive points uh then you that that part of it is actually there's some reason to believe that i mean this the kennedy assassination especially is so clearly a top-down thing that and, and with a cover-up that was strictly enforced that it definitely shows some kind of dark force intervening in politics to make sure that the right political outcome you know w was was gonna occur so yeah it's to be sympathetic to him like there's there's a logic to what he was saying and it's and it's a it is a radical critique that has a a, a real basis when you look at history and, and it's in the generalities of it but when, when if you try to get too specific on it then you you run into some issues. I guess like the question would be, did these guys, suppose these guys actually did all work together, right? I have, my issue is with this guy, George Pender, for whom there is very little really out there about. I can't imagine him, I can't imagine like Richard Helms and Ted Shackley being somehow subordinate to this guy. I, you know, maybe he, they were, but it doesn't jibe with what I know about their own power base. So the question would be, were they acting in concert with each other uh, exclusively, or did they consider themselves just hooking up out of convenience, but still representing other larger forces outside of this, you know, eight-man group? You know what I'm saying? So obviously, like, Shackley's got connections to the agency, Safari Club, Lee Council on Foreign Relations. It goes on and on and on, you know. So why... I'm, I've always wondered, and I've never really nailed down how Danny arrived at these eight guys as being this unified syndicate, I suppose you could call it. Yes, it does seem as though he liked, as you say, he had the soul of a, of a poet. And yeah. perhaps he was so taken by the octopus symbolism and metaphor in his mind that because to feel like okay, it's got to be it's got to be eight dudes, and I'm gonna swap them out to, in order to fit the 
in order to fit the metaphor that that doesn't that seems a little a, a strange choice i do have a theory and obviously i mean the guy's dead so i can't i'm not presuming to speak for him here or anything but my theory right. is people have kind of misinterpreted i think danny's research would have eventually taken him in a direction where yes he was focusing on these eight key guys but without saying it was those guys alone who were kind of the puppet yeah. masters of history i think he was using those eight guys or he would have used them eventually as kind of roots into much broader networks you know of what we would call parapolitics now um and he just never got to that point because, you know, unfortunately he got killed before he could get there. Right. And there was a lot, I mean, the time that he's writing this is is notable. It's the end of the Cold War. And I there was still the residual impact of the mentality of the Cold War, which was that there had we had to fight this implacable foe, this mm -hmm. twilight eternal struggle. And so you had to sometimes, you know, play a little dirty because they did and they wanted to destroy our, our, our freedom and everything good in the world. And people internalize that to some degree. And, and so that you hadn't really had those years where, OK, there's no Cold War, but the empire is rolling on. And then was it ever really about the Cold War? or Was it always about empire, which I think is the conclusion that everybody should really come to now. But to be fair, it wasn't quite as obvious in you know, it definitely wasn't obvious to the bulk of the population now, and it was probably an awareness that much fewer people w could have had at that time. Yeah, I think that um, there was there's a there's an interesting kind of parallel here with the things that Danny was chasing up and investigating into the summer, late summer of 1991, and the revelation of the existence of Gladio in Italy in I think that was 1990. And in both cases, um, Danny's death and the revelation of Gladio the year before, there was a brief sort of flurry of press interest. Um, and then it kind of went away. And I think a lot of that was because people weren't really interested in chasing up these old Cold War spook stories anymore. Everyone had really drank the end of history Kool-Aid, you know, and it was like, fuck it. It's the 90s now, you know, like, yeah, this guy got killed and it was suspicious, but, you know, that happened like two months ago, man, you know, and the USSR is collapsing, who get, who really gives a shit, you know, and it's only in the years since that people have started to ask more and more questions about that, you know, like, the things that he was looking at, if more people had been around him at the time who were, you know, also interested in those things, I don't know, maybe there's a chance that... Uh, <sighs> something bigger may have come of the fact that he died and more might have been done to follow up, you know, on the links that he uncovered. Um, but I guess we'll never know. Yeah. I, I would say also, I would point out also that that's our, this is the time around the time Oliver Stone's film comes out and uh, it causes a, enough of a stir in the public that they passed the JFK records act. And uh, it had, that passed unanimously uh, in Congress, and that's a pretty remarkable thing. Uh, and additionally, around this time period, you do have the deaths of two senators in, within a week in really bizarre uh, plane crashes. I think that was in 91 also. 
I mean, I, I wonder if this is a this this aspect of it, the timing at the end of the Cold War, and that there, you know, people that were establishment. Are we talking you know, about um, luminaries were were saying that we should end the CIA and stuff like Daniel Patrick Moynihan? I mean, I think that there was a the, a worry or an actual real struggle about the direction that the U.S. might go, or a fear that they might abandon empire. Yeah, um, actually, there's a very interesting Oliver Stone connection in this story because Danny. I don't know if he did this, but when he was working with the Christic Institute at certain points during his uh, his investigation, there was some talk apparently of Oliver Stone possibly making a documentary based on Danny's uh, work and research. I don't know if it ever got as far as them actually talking to each other. I'd be curious to know that if they did actually ever meet. Um, but apparently that was a possibility at one point, um, although nothing ever came of it, obviously. Well, I, I uh, I'll ask. Yeah, I'll, you should. I'll ask. try to ask Oliver and see see what he says because uh, that's that's fascinating. Um, I know they they died on um, consecutive days. I think the 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 Is tower. The, yeah, John Tower. The he did the uh, was it the Iran Contra investigation or the Tower Commission report or whatever. Right, and he well, he was also on the church committee. If you look yeah. at him, uh, he's he's there, and he's a Texas conservative guy. He was George H. W. Bush's first choice for defense secretary, and yes. then there's this weird scandal about him that comes out where he's uh, involved. It says that he's involved in womanizing and drinking too much, right? Yeah. And his response, sort of years afterwards, is I I think I read somewhere that he was, was sort of puzzled by this. And he said, like, we drinking and womanizing. I mean, this is like, you're describing the whole Senate. What is this? What is this about? But the guy that does become defense secretary is Dick Cheney after yeah. this scandal. So, <laughs> uh, you know, he, but so that he would have been bitter, perhaps bitter at the establishment in some way tower, tower would have. And Heinz was known to be, he was a Pennsylvania Senator uh -huh. and Heinz was known to be a kind of a, a person more in the old, Rockefeller Republican ish, you know, sort of liberal Republican style. Yeah. And he would have been, he would have known Richard Schweiker, who was a critic of the uh, Kennedy assassination and was a Pennsylvania senator and also a Republican. I mean, I, I just have to wonder if there's some, if there was something, whether they want, whether there was some move among a few po powerful people in the Senate or wherever to look into some of these things, whether it's related to promise or whether it's related to the Kennedy assassination or these whole networks that have been able to assert this kind of emergency prerogative to, to commit, you know, murder, et cetera, et cetera. Like what was happening then? Because it's such a pivotal time. And those two back-to-back -back back -back deaths from plane crashes with U.S. senators is uncanny. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, it seems an impossible, an impossible coincidence. Yeah. I mean, that's the New World Order speech year too, right? Right. So, yeah, 1991 is quite a significant year, especially in the story of the octopus, as it were. Um, I can't list every single event that happened, but, yeah, we have the deaths of those two guys. We have um, the fall of BCCI as well, which I think people underestimate how huge that actually was for if, – if you – are interested in like the history of covert activity and the uh, security state, then the removal of BCCI as a place to like clean money and conduct operations and coordinate things, that was a huge blow for them, you know? Um, and it keeps kind of going on. You've got like the dissolution of the USSR, all these different things happen in such a short space of time. Danny dies as well. Um, 
so yeah, 1991 is a really, really interesting year. Uh, it's where a lot of kind of threads meet, uh, kind of converge, you know. It's also interesting to ponder that George H.W. Bush, who has a high approval rating and he's presided over the defeat of the Soviet Union, you could say, at yeah. the end of the Cold War, he's won the Gulf War and then he doesn't, he loses. And it's like the establishment did, I mean, Bill Clinton was kind of, um, he got good media coverage. I remember when I was a I was a kid when that happened, but I was a really, you know, nerdy kid who liked to read Newsweek all the time. I always read Newsweek, this you know, generic political magazine. It's like 2 degrees to the left of Time magazine. Yeah, yeah. In, in the US. And I remember them I remember before, like a year before they were writing little little things about Bill Clinton and this he was like this governor that was like people are talking about him and it was like they were, in retrospect, it's sort of like what they did with Jimmy Carter. They were building this guy up. I mean, he was, he was, because it's not like, oh man, Arkansas is doing awesome. Like, it, Arkansas is where you want to be. Like, Arkansas sucked just as much under Bill Clinton as it does today. And I mean, I say this as someone who's from Southern Indiana, so I'm not saying where I'm from is, is so great, but like, it's not as though there was any basis for promoting Bill Clinton this way. It was like he was somebody who had been kind of, I think uh, identified and groomed in a particular way. And then Ross Perot enters and, and that kind of helps to bring in Bill Clinton. And, uh, you know, you got to wonder what was, what was going on there because Bush does seem to be one of the most connected and nefarious persons. And he loses an, an election as an incumbent that you just wouldn't expect him to lose. So what do you make of Bush's place in all this? Because he, he seems to be a huge figure during this period. And I never, can totally feel completely satisfied about trying to conceptualize just what he represents. Cause he's not Southern cowboy. He's half, or he's, he's half cowboy, half Yankee by the Carl Oglesby formulation. But I think that's important. And yet I, I yeah. can't explain exactly what that means. I found, um, I was looking at, I did a web search of the carry thing and I found a education forum thread. Yeah. And it links to an old article and it says this, and I'm not putting, I'm not going to put it, Make of this what you will. I haven't looked to check this or not. And it's written by a guy who in the past I thought was kind of a kook and, and is a an odd a, a, a character. I wouldn't definitely look this up. Don't ever think that this is accurate without confirming it. But he says that, <clears throat> among other things, um, two of the passengers on Bush's BAC 111 flight to Paris were Senator John Hines along with Senator John Tower from Texas. So that's like the... That's the infamous. I think that's the infamous um, flight for the you know, where they're uh, working on October Surprise. Shit. Yeah, yeah. Um, if that's true, I don't know because the guy. I think this guy's like an anti-Semite and a crank. So he's you know I don't. I would have to. I would not believe that that is true unless I could prove it elsewhere. Yeah, but it's crazy. Um, there was something else as well actually that happened in 1991, and I completely forgot to mention this. Uh, include this right. Robert Maxwell died in 1991 as well. And if, uh, if I don't know if your listeners will be aware of who he is, but his significance to the story of like promise and the octopus and the preceding 10 years, you know, of like Iran Contra and intrigue with Mossad and the KGB and MI6, his importance in like the, um, the deep state for lack of a better term 
the fact that he died in 1991 as well, that's when you have to start wondering if some kind of house clearing was going on that year. <laughs> like yeah. somebody somewhere had decided the decks needed clearing uh, because it was a new decade. We needed some fresh faces in there or something like that. I don't know, but it's very interesting that all this shit happens in that one year. Yeah, um, absolutely. It's uh, it, it, it's a very, very... Uh, it, it's so overwhelming, and then all but all the characters. If you just look back at them and the, these different scandals, I mean, these are the essence of the U.S. Empire that had this clandestine criminal aspect of it that really maintained the order. So that if you know this, all this liberal democracy and this and that, if it doesn't play out the right way, then you have sh chicanery. Yeah, and uh, it, it's on a scale that is hard to wrap your mind around, but it has just been a part of the system. The chicanery and the criminality has just been it's institutionalized it's 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 wild and it does come to the fore to this in that year i mean it's like here in britain i think at a certain point it, corruption for you know let's call it what it is that becomes as much a norm as uh rising to speak you know in parliament or something like that it's just a practice it's just a habitual thing that everybody sort of engages in and it's understood that if you don't engage in it you are painting a target on your back then you know Cops don't trust cops who don't take a bribe every now and again, you know. It's the same for politics, I guess. Right. Yeah, it's a difficult thing to wrap your mind around and and, and to really internalize it, it, it makes it it's a bit uh it's a bitter pill to swallow to think like when you speak to any young person or or whatever and you try to tell them about anything related to the world or what they're gonna do, because I was I was a high school teacher for a while, and then you realize that like in our the highest positions are characterized first and foremost by like corruptibility and co yeah. the ability to be co to be co-optable. Yeah, yeah. So like if you try to tell people like, oh yeah, tell the truth, do the right thing, well, that's not going to help them to get ahead in this society. Like you're actually giving them bad advice. Yeah, yeah. So Well, let's talk about a guy who did get ahead again, uh, our man George H. W. Bush, because right. he is a key figure in this time, and I, he, in a, he's sort of a. It's like you wonder if, in some way, he could potentially be the Rosetta Stone to understanding some of the things that we can't quite ever, you know, understand perfectly during this era. But what is your what is your uh, conclusion about him, or your suspicions about George Bush, and what he really represented? Because he's a big figure in this whole octopus story as well. Well, in the I background, mean, or he's kind of looming over it in a way, like a dark, a dark and sort of nerdy, but yet malevolent presence. Yeah, um, I guess. I mean, I imagine some of y'all listeners may listen to my show, so they'll probably already know that. Um, you know, I consider him to be the closest thing to a boss that the American uh, secret state has has ever had. Um, if I don't really go in for the idea that it's like a pyramidal, pyramid-shaped, like, conspiratorial hierarchy. But if it was that, then the guy who would sit at the head of that table would be George Bush, uh, Poppy Bush, you know, the Bush the Elder. Um, in terms of, like, he serves this intriguing dual role. So for the first two-thirds of his career, he's like a middleman and a fixer. And you see him on the periphery of a lot of things that happen, you know, like Watergate or JFK hit Bay of Pigs. 
But then as the 80s arrive, it's almost like he accidentally sort of finagled himself into being like, the, yeah, the head of the table, you know. Um, I think a lot of that stems from the fact that he was made the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. And I think that that served to kind of um, turbocharge him and also kind of make him, you know, in the eyes of like uh, what we might call the power elite in America. I think he showed that he was a guy who could be trusted to to do a good cleanup job. To um, because that's what he did. I mean, that was yeah. he was. He, they fired William Colby. This is the Halloween massacre, and they mm -hmm. put him in. They 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 move everything to the right a little bit in the new Ford administration, which really makes you understand what Watergate was all about, or yep. at least have a suspicion. And then he is there to cover all uh, cover up all these these crimes. And this the cover story for him was that he'd never been a part of the CIA before, had no connection to it. Yeah, and I think his genius, such as it was, was. I mean, people talk about, like, this is some kind of aberration, you know, that when he started privatizing, like, more and more of the CIA's activities and outsourcing and, you know, the setting up of Safari Club and so on and so forth, using BCCI more and more as a conduit for uh, Black Ops funding. All he was doing, really, is bringing a more updated version of what Alan Dulles had initially seen as, you know, the CIA's, like, MO. Um, he was just updating that and bringing it in for the arrival of you know the 1980s but i don't know he he added a few tweaks and made it his own and sort of made it a little bit more refined and sophisticated but i think that that was his chief um contribution i suppose to the development of like american corruption and then yeah once he slides in as reagan's vice president he has access to this massive clandestine apparatus um, he can call in favors from all over the place. I mean, I think you'll know already, but like Ted Shackley was a huge source for Reagan and Bush. Shackley wasn't at the CIA by that point, but he still had enough pull that he could, he was using CIA agents and other operatives here, there and everywhere to feed Reagan and Bush information about, you know, uh, the election, about uh, their rivals, their enemies inside the GRP, this, that and the other. So, and that was Bush, you know, that was the kind of loyalty that he commanded by that point. So I think by the time Reagan gets in, you have Reagan as this kind of nominal uh, figurehead. And, you know, then behind him, you have Poppy Bush kind of, I don't know if I go so far as to say he was the real president, but in secret, but it, it comes quite close, especially when you get into the fucking continuity of government stuff around Iran-Contra. I don't know if we even want to go down that rabbit hole, but... When you get into all that stuff, you have to start asking serious questions about what exactly does a vice president, what business does a vice president have getting involved in that sort of shit and coke trafficking and cutting deals with Noriega and it goes on and on, you know, but. Right. Um, but it doesn't seem like, I mean, you're saying that he seems like the real president, but by all accounts, Ronald Reagan was not a very hands-on person really concerned yeah. with policy. So. I guess the question is, was there a real president like George Bush or really or was it kind of a a committee that would guide, you know, Ronald Reagan as sort of like he's like a he's like a blimp in the sky and then you, he gets blown yeah. one way or the other or something. I mean, yeah. I don't know what the good metaphor is, but it, at, at any rate, it doesn't seem like what happened in the 80s was like because Ronald Reagan had some ideas about, you know, X, Y and Z. I don't think nobody can make that argument. Yeah, it seems like he was more of a. A front? I don't know how you'd describe him, really. A weekend at Bernie's guy? 
Like he was there. <laughs> yeah. He was there to make a he really. Was a Muppet. He yeah. was a corporate Muppet. He was there to kind of make a really good Hollywood fried speech, but the the real operators were kind of behind him, like actually making the policy and changing the world, I suppose. Yeah. Now this dovetails with things from the 1970s. And I guess this book gets written in 1980 is when it's published. I believe the Carl Oglesby's Yankee cowboy war. Uh, how do you think, how do you think this kind of analysis fits into, um, into understanding things like George Bush or the, or the whole, in, the whole promise case, you know, the octopus idea in general, um, where do you think, how do you, how do you conceptualize this? I think that it's actually an excellent example of what Oglesby was talking about when he, he was talking about the, uh, the habitual practice of an entire class of people. It's a multitude of conspiracies contending in the night. Like there is no central orchestration going on. Like there's no grand puppet master. This is just the practice of an entire class. And it leads to just wheels within wheels and schemes within schemes endlessly, you know, and sometimes they collude with each other and sometimes they uh, conflict. But yeah, I think that promise is a great illustration, not so much promise, but the, the network surrounding the Inslaw affair um, are a great illustration of what Oglesby was talking about. And I think, to be honest, Danny would have probably got there in the end because um, if you read like the drafts of his manuscripts and stuff, he was starting to kind of appreciate, you know, the complexity of it all more and more uh, towards the end. But yeah, he never quite got there before the end. But it's so it's interesting, you know, it's but I think it's a perfect example of what Oglesby was talking about. Yes, and I, I think that it's it's tricky to know what to make of the Oglesby book. If you read it now, there's you know you know that there's other literature that's in these areas, and you can find a lot of you know issues with his. I mean, basically his general argument that like what, that Dallas was carried out by uh, the, a cowboy faction, and that Watergate was somehow revenge for Dallas. Like, I don't think that that. The, the particulars of what he was saying don't really hold up and he doesn't have a very strong argument. And I think that maybe that's why he sort of threw up his hands and really didn't write much in that vein afterwards. But the, the general part of it of like these many of, of, a, of a generally conspiratorial uh, ruling class intertwined with organized crime and uh, the intelligence agencies and so on. I mean, and th this is, this is significant. And then some of the, the, fact that they have to bother with like killing people and and trying to suppress you know things related to this promise story and even that they have to worry about this other legal machinery and so on it does show that there are countervailing forces that you know that these that these uh, people and entities have to have to worry about so in that way i think it's it's still useful even if he's kind of even if he's in the particulars he, he, it doesn't come off so well you yeah. know all these years later like the the general thrust of it is i think imp important to understand it's a the deep state is not a monolith and because we don't we're not an outright fascist country with a fascist sovereign. I mean, that's why the fascists killed the, you know, Mussolini didn't like the mafia because he didn't he centralized all the violence in the state and all the racketeering in the state. Like you don't need a mafia under that case. But like if you if you have a if you're going to have a democratic veneer, then you're going to have these ways that you have to manage these countervailing pressures, I think. I mean, I think if you look even at like. Uh, Nazi Germany or fascist Italy, you still have the fractions inside, like the party, you know, yeah. that are uh, conspiring with and against each other. Um, 
The one thing I've always been curious about is where Silicon Valley would fit into the cowboy and Yankee thing. You know, if we were to apply it yeah. up to the present day, uh, I've a few people have said that it kind of constitute just another faction in the cowboys. But I wonder if actually you could argue that it, it represents like a new third power, I guess, you know, but I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, what I, what I found when I was doing, you know, my doctoral work and then wrote about it later, which I had no idea. And I don't think that many people, because diplomatic history is sort of insulated from people that look at deep politics and stuff that, that this argument or this, what I think is a pretty clear, you know, something that you can demonstrate in, in history. It's a narrative that I think makes a lot of sense and that I can really support with empirical evidence or backup. It's that the Yankee faction is this dominant faction of American capitalism, and they basically give rise to the cowboys on purpose. Like they basically give rise to the military industrial complex because people like mm -hmm. Dean Acheson and these other, you know, Wall Street hired hired guns, rent a brains, the, the people that formulated the uh, you know, the U.S. empire in the first place at the War and Peace Studies Project with Rockefeller dollars and at the Council on Foreign Relations. These guys realize that you're going to need that, that the economic problems internationally and this dollar gap, this problem of earning enough dollars if in Western Europe and in Japan to be a part of this capitalist system that they envisioned, it isn't going to work unless there's a huge military behemoth. And so they set about creating this. They write NSC 68, they call for a massive creation of a of a milit of a permanent war making industry and this is to solve this is not because the soviets are going to invade because they know the soviets don't want to invade they're not itching for a war they just lost 27 million people but in order to have the right capitalist system overseen by the us they have to have a whole lot of they have to change the spending priorities and the flows of dollars and the military industrial complex is the way to do this to solve the dollar gap issue so like the military industrial complex and the so-called cowboys are really a function of decisions made by these Wall Street elites. I yeah. mean, these these internationally minded Wall Street elite, Wall Street elites like like the Dulles brothers, like uh, Dean Acheson, yeah, and so on. And then somebody like Bush, you know, he's a he's a Yankee from Connecticut, and then he goes down to Texas and <laughs> is in the oil business. But it's like he's also CIA connected with his oil and so on. I mean, this is where I I think that they. These guys ultimately represent, like, I think the pinnacle of the pyramid, even if there are these this cowboy right wing oil and uh, defense section. It's like they've always been kind of subordinated to these other people. I mean, I think that's why Kissinger says stuff like, oh, military men are dumb, stupid animals for foreign policy, you know, to be used as pawns in foreign policy. That's a Kissinger quote, right? Yeah. But that's because Kissinger is more like tied to those guys who are like kind of superior. Like they they end up being much shrewder, I think, in the and carrying the day in the deep state, but they empowered all these right-wing elements. And now it's kind of, they're interchangeable almost, I think, uh, as time goes on, because they're, they're sort of, they have this symbiotic relationship of the, the sort of financial right-wing and then the like military right-wing. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what we get is like, they found a way to work together and that's bad for everybody else. Well, I mean, they share the same objectives more often than not. I guess it's just the, the specifics of how to get there that they occasionally disagree with. Do you know what I mean? Well, they're all ultimately part of the same class, so they have the same interests, you know. Yeah, yeah. Now, let's look at Danny Casolaro's death here. I'm with you. I believe that it's a, a supremely suspicious 
kind of impossibly suspicious suicide, quote unquote, and that he must have been killed. But set the stage here for us. What what's what's going on that leads to his death, and why does no why do so few people buy the official story? Well, um, in the months kind of leading up to the event, he's becoming, I would say, more and more convinced that he's about to. He kept he kept calling it land the octopus. You know, he was going to bring back the head of the octopus or whatever. Um, there's a lot of dispute over whether or not he even had a book deal lined up at this point because the investigation had gone on far longer than I think he'd perhaps planned for, and his agent was struggling to find anyone who would buy the manuscript just because of, in large part, because of the sheer amount of allegations you know that it contained. Um, Anyway, in the months leading up to August of 1991, Danny is in quite a, a happy state of mind, but he has mentioned that on a couple of occasions, uh, strange men have approached him in bars or um, while he's, you know, been running an errand and basically threatened him and warned him off. Now, you could say he's just making this up for effect, you know, as a kind of cool additional subplot to the story of the octopus book. But this has actually been verified by people who were with him, you know, at the time, like in these bars and elsewhere. Um, there's one guy in particular, and I'm completely blanking on his name, but he was a Marine. And he did actually, he is actually confirmed as having approached Danny and threatened him outright um, in a bar, basically wanting him to stay away from uh, what he was looking into. Robert Booth Nichols, who we've not even had time to get into him, but he's a whole other uh, maze of intrigue you can explore. He was initially very close to Danny, but then as time went on, Danny started to become increasingly scared of him. He started to think that uh, Robert Booth Nichols not only was legit, but he was actually plugged into some really dangerous people, and Danny kind of wanted out. Um and so we get to a point where he's going to meet a source in uh, Martinsburg in West Virginia. And he starts getting these phone calls in the weeks leading up to it at his house. And they're all words to the same effect of like, stay the fuck away from West Virginia, stay the fuck away from uh, your story, or we're going to kill you, you know. And when the day before he sets off, he tells his brother that if something happens to him while he's down there, don't believe the official story, whatever that might be. He goes, that same day, his housemaid gets, I think, two or three phone calls. And it's this voice she doesn't recognize saying, you know, tell Danny we're going to cut him up and feed him to the sharks. Words to that effect. So Danny gets to Martinsburg. Um, he is seen talking to a man who's described as Middle Eastern in appearance in this bar sort of chats to a waitress in a, a diner, goes back to his hotel room, and he has a conversation with the guy in the room next to his. He says, basically, the guy I was supposed to meet uh, never showed up. And then that's the last time Danny's seen alive. He's found the next day, and there are, it's, I think it's about half a dozen um, gouges in each wrist. Um, there's a bloody towel on the bathroom floor that looks like someone's tried mopping up the blood and then given up and, and left in a hurry. Uh, the one of the hotel maids had seen a guy she described as uh, tall, dark, and handsome leaving the motel room just before she went in to uh, give it a turn and found Danny dead there. Uh, and thereafter, 
there's a whole load of fuckery that goes on the uh, between the FBI, the local cops, just generally a very kind of rushed, not very thorough investigation. And there's something else as well. Danny's body was embalmed. I'll, I won't bother getting into that because it's a, a bit complicated to explain, but the handling of Danny's body was fucked up basically as well. Um, and uh, not, not according to like actual state laws and such. That's right? it. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. It's um, I'm not really familiar with how all that stuff works. Uh, again, my boy Benghazi would be able to just reel all this stuff off like flawlessly, but um, I always get hazy on these particulars, but so after this, um, the investigation's kind of rushed. I think the local, the the homicide investigators who were first on the scene are actually quite keen to pursue uh, whatever avenues they can. But I think it becomes obvious to them very early on that it seems suspicious based on what the family have told them. And there seems to be a lot of loose ends that trouble them but there's nothing definitive. There's no hook they can really hang their hat on. Uh, This maid's description of, you know, the guy leaving the motel room, they canvas for that, they can't find anything. They're not sure who this source was supposed to be. And it it kind of just ends there. You know, it's just this this puzzle. But it does later come out, I think it was reported on Muckrock, that a lot of the FBI investigators at the time were given the impression by higher-ups that it would be bad for their career if they pursued a murder investigation, their words. Um, and also the FBI has refused to release the uh, video reenactment of Danny's death as well, or they had the last time I checked anyway. Um, and there's something they else. They made well. a video reenactment of his death? Yeah, I think it was to demonstrate how it was actually feasible, you know, for him to have done what he'd done. But then this is where we get into the whole... MS diagnosis and whether or not he would have even had the strength to do it, considering he struggled sometimes to hold a tennis racket in that final those final few months. Um, and there's something else as well, which is at his funeral, and this is the thing that has driven me insane for like 15 <laughs> years now. At his funeral, every attendee who was there has reported that a man in a general's uniform and a man uh, wearing like a a plain two-piece brown suit, three-piece brown suit, they showed up at the church, they strode down the aisle, they put a medal on Danny's coffin, and then they saluted, and then they left the church. And obviously the family's grief-stricken, friends are kind of like, what the fuck just happened? Nobody really had a chance to get to him. It's just one of those things that happened, and then they were gone. And this has bugged me for years and i've never found anyone who's got a take on what the hell that is all about um it's just it bugs me it disturbs me too not on the same level as you but it's (laughs) stuck in my mind because i remembered hearing about this years ago when i first started looking into you know a number of these parapolitical uh you know mysteries and so on i remember that story i remember thinking that is inexplicable based on what the official story is of like this guy's just a journalist who's you know got a story and then kills himself so I suppose a possible theory would be maybe Danny was working for somebody, but I don't know who. Another theory, honestly, is maybe this was the LaRoucheites just doing something to fuck with the family and the witnesses who were at the church just to create an added layer of mystery. Who knows? You know, it could have been anybody, somebody just playing a, a really cruel prank on the family. I don't know. But 
all I know is that they saw what they saw and they've never changed their story, you know, since that day. So I don't know. <laughs> really don't know what yeah. to make of it. I mean, it, it doesn't make sense that if you were somehow connected to the state and a high-ranking military official that you would need as an agent someone who had so little yeah. backing behind him, you know? Like, that that doesn't that's not satisfactory. Anything with the LaRouches are so weird, and they seem to me to be some element of, of the intelligence world. Yeah, of, of yeah. Like, in, in some way, I don't see how you can make sense of what they do because... They they don't have much appeal to a, a broad number of people, but they have they hire people. They have like, I mean, they actually have some sort of structure in place that doesn't that doesn't seem to make sense unless you think they have some benefactors that are there in some way. They have some way of, of doing what they do, and they always they're very mischievous. And they kind of, I mean, I think that the, the crudest thing to say is that they're kind of a they function largely as a shit code operation to just yeah because they 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 descend on things like uh, the Franklin scandal. They were one of the only groups to cover the Franklin scandal. But what it, what effect does that have? That it, it makes the, it makes it radioactive. You know that's like whatever they do, they're known by people who are aware of their stuff to be you know kind of cranks basically. So well, I mean speaking you know, of shit cutting, um, we also I forgot to mention that um, another guy who played a key role. Uh, in the Inslaw affair, or certainly the story surrounding it, was Ted Gunderson, um, who was yeah. also another Satanic Panic guy. He yeah. kind of made Michael Reconosciuto his cause celebra. Michael Reconosciuto is the guy who uh, turned state's witness and says that he was the guy who designed and installed the trapdoor in the promised software. And it does feel like certain assets were activated around the Inslaw affair to um yeah poison the narrative and and yeah render it toxic and radioactive so that um you know quote unquote sensible journalists wouldn't go near it um and i don't think they figured on someone as tenacious and frankly as reckless as danny just getting involved and going hell for leather and digging into everything and when they realized what they were dealing with i think that's when someone somewhere made a decision that he had to go, you know. Yeah, and he also, I mean, even if he hadn't died in West Virginia, uh, he he was set to go interview other people where you're thinking, those are pretty dangerous. Even by his own formulation of what the octopus represented, it's like his naive, uh, you want to call him naive, but he wasn't naive in a way because he did understand on some level that these people were involved in massive criminal activity. Yeah, I but think. What did he think was going to protect him? I, I, but based on his own, you know, his own interpretation of what these people were doing and were capable of, and yet he th did. He, what did he think he was the Terminator or what? Was, I think what he. The... I think he genuinely was informed by like his, his kind of Catholic um, faith, and I think he genuinely believed that he sort of he he was after like justice in his mind, you know, and and the truth would make everything right. As long as he could get the truth out there and get his book published or get a mini series published in like the New York times or time magazine or something. I think he genuinely believed, you know, this will set things right somehow. You know what I mean? And obviously it was like a catastrophic miscalculation. Um, but as, as far as like, yeah, that like the, I guess the recklessness, he was planning to go to Belgium in 1991 
and this is at the peak of Belgium's, you know, uh, corrupt years kind of thing. Like, they're just coming off the bloody 80s. The Dutroux affair is about to explode. And he was planning to go there to just ask questions um, of anyone he could find about CIA drug trafficking. Uh, I possibly think he knew about the Stay Behind Networks, but he didn't know they were called Stay Behind Networks. But I think he had some sort of lead on that as well. And yeah, that's that's very that's very explosive because that is a huge thing. I mean, it's up to the present day, really. I mean, he made a lot uh, of references to like you know managed violence in Europe and and South America and whatnot. Um, he was on yeah. the trail of something. I personally am surmising there. I think that that means he may have known about that. But also, don't forget, this is ninety one, so Gladio had already been. Um, exposed in Italy and other European countries were slowly starting to admit their own stay-behind networks existed. So it's possible that Danny was just kind of keeping an eye on the news and that was also like motivating the decision to go to Belgium, just NATO headquarters. So, But yeah, um, I'm not sure what he was thinking. I genuinely think he thought if if I've got the truth, that's that's all I need or, you know, something like that. Right. Yeah. So what what do you think kept him? I mean, I, I have my own theories on these, and I, I think that they kind of match. They they are pretty close to yours, but I'm just I'll just pose the question to you. What do you think made let him go so spectacularly wrong? Because I I find this like I, I like you. I also kind of admire the guy, and I like the characters. You hear the story, you root for him, and you think he's probably basically a good guy, but. He had there's things he makes bad decisions that are themselves poetic and and funny, sad at the same time, tragic. Where do you think he where do you think he went wrong and why do you think it happened that way? Um this is going to sound a bit heretic or maybe sacrilegious, but I think the fact that he was a largely self-taught journalist played a big role in him um, maybe misunderstanding the amount of danger that he was in. He didn't have the backing of an institution like a New York Times or a Washington Post. I'm not saying that they would have been, they weren't interested in a story like this, but had they been, I think he would not have died. You know, Um, I think they knew that he was kind of a lone operator and that made him extremely vulnerable. I do suspect that he was manipulated to some extent by like the LaRouches and um, certain other people. And I think even in his own notes, he he does express like exasperation with people like Michael Reconosciuto and Robert Booth Nichols because he knows there is something here, but he also knows the people that he's dealing with are lying to him, you know, um, in some way. And they're letting him in on some stuff and steering him away from other stuff. And I think he got so obsessed with the story and and bringing back the head of the octopus. I think it led him to kind of develop a tunnel vision. And you know what it's like yourself when you're on like a, a research bit and you genuinely think you're onto something amazing. It's like, you know, you can feel the holy fire like, <laughs> like throbbing through you. You're just kind of like, hell yes, like let's do it. And I think... Danny had that, and it it just led him to completely misread the uh, the warning signs, um, and yeah, he ends up in that hotel room, and 
For me, I, I don't even think that his death necessarily had anything to do with Promise or Inslaw. I think he was looking into so much stuff by that point. Could have been any one of a thousand operations that he blew without even realizing he'd blown. And someone he had never heard of might have ordered his murder, you know. No, I bet I would that I would bet on. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah. I would almost bet money on that. That yeah. whoever ordered it was somebody that he would never even think. Yeah. That he had never even come in contact with. I mean, that's part of what's so scary about this this whole this whole system. Yeah. I mean, that's uh he had he had MS and and he believed I I seem to recall that he believed that he was he he may have been poisoned and I think that's actually quite possible. There's some literature on the on, on the US working to be to develop ways to incapacitate people, give them cancer and so on. James Wilcott, one of the founders of Covert Action magazine, was himself he he had some strange puncture wound of some kind uh with a like dark circle around it and then he got a debilitating neurological condition shortly thereafter and he had been a CIA whistleblower of sorts i mean he he said that it was common knowledge that Lee Harvey Oswald was being paid by the CIA like after he had supposedly been discharged and then he gets this uh this neurological disease that really shortens his life uh and and kind of incapacitates him my my friend and mentor Lance DeHaven Smith was a professor and he he also had a similar kind of experience and I've always wondered if he had been uh, poisoned in some way and given a, you know, some sort of rapid onset Parkinson's type disorder. I mean, what was the deal with, with his, with Cosolaro's illness and, and what did he think about it? He tied it, I think, to a lot of the things he'd been looking into around um, biological weapons research that he'd uncovered at uh, the Cabazon Ranch, the Cabazon Reservation in California. Um I think he he was very paranoid. Once he got the MS diagnosis, I think it, naturally you're already kind of in a a heightened state of like paranoia. You get this diagnosis and you can't help. I, I suppose your mind can't help but make the connection between that and you know the uh, biochemical weapons research that you've been looking into. Um, I honestly, I don't know if he was poisoned or if he just, it was just a, a naturally developing um, disease. It wouldn't yeah, surprise I mean, people me. People do get those diseases, of course. That's yeah. the, I think that's the what makes that, that uh, capability so, you know, awful and terrifying is mm -hmm. that there's, you're just left saying like, well, who knows? Yeah. And I think in that situation where it's, yeah, it's super intense there's a lot of paranoia you're already kind of reading a lot about death and assassinations and covert activity you are i think you can be forgiven for thinking about what are the chances that i would suddenly be diagnosed with this while i'm in the middle of researching all of this stuff you know and i don't know um yeah i mean for for my mind it's the what what makes you what makes me like uh, Cosolaro and also you know shake my head is that I you know as an American I sort of had to go on a similar journey myself from like trying to deprogram these myths that you are that are drilled into your head in the USA, but you can you can see some of this with Cosolaro. It's that he believes that it's he believes mostly in like the american way and the righteousness of the free enterprise system i guess because he was an entrepreneur of sorts and even as he is researching this 
he doesn't see this as like uh being this this sort of violence as as being likely you know really a a part of the system of governance he has to see it as this kind of external you know uh pathological aberrant thing that he's going to expose and and root out with a, as a good american journalist like woodward and bernstein and also as like a real american he's going to do this and he's going to make a buck doing it like to me yeah. he's just like the ultimate american and that is that's that that's like what that explains what he was doing and it explains what happened to him and the inevitability of it and uh so him being like this ultimate american is like not necessarily a compliment but it's it's kind of endearing to me but it's also it also it's also tragic because it's like he couldn't he he was incapable of really looking at himself objectively because none of us really are we're all raised in these cultures that that shape us oh you know to a huge extent and then so he just sort of goes along this way it's 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 very it's very sad and poignant and tragic and all that yeah i think near the end um if what his girlfriend uh if i'm remembering what she said right his mood did turn dark at certain points um <clears throat> he perked up once he realized that he was near the end of his project i thought he knew he was near the end of his project but just prior to that she did uh say that um his mood had darkened considerably and his opinion of like the american system in general had really um changed and not for the better um so i guess that's one of the really sad what ifs of the whole thing is like if he hadn't have died um it, it would have been interesting to see what his opinions and thoughts were you know like once he wrapped his investigation and he had as close to a full overview of like the preceding 15 years of uh, secret activity as you're likely to get. Um, but, you know, again, we'll never know. We'll never know. Well, we've gone on a little bit longer than I'd planned. So I want to thank you for sticking uh, with me here and, and going through this. I, I think that this is a, a fascinating bit. And if anyone is um, anyone who hasn't heard your series, I really encourage them to uh, go over to Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Is that the full name? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ghost Stories for the End of the World. And uh, everything I've heard that you put out is is interesting and entertaining at the same time. Oh, so I encourage people to check out that Octopus series and your other work. And I uh, really thank you for joining me today. No problem, man. Anytime. Been a pleasure. Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. Please do check out Matt's excellent Patreon podcast, Ghost Stories for the End of the World. Thank you all so much for supporting us here so that we can keep chasing the light. <laughs> <laughs>